0: You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Greg Lukianoff. John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, meaning sometimes the sound quality is less than optimum.
1: Today I'm joined by Greg Lukianoff. He's a lawyer having graduated from American University and from Stanford. Greg is now the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FAR, and he's indeed wearing a T-shirt reflecting that today. He focuses on the the First Amendment, constitutional law, and indeed on the predicament of freedom of expression on university campuses, a widely discussed and very important topic right across Western countries at the moment. In 2015, he wrote a now famous article with Jonathan Haidt called The Coddling of the American Mind. It was later turned into a very successful book. I've had the opportunity, uh, listeners will remember, to talk to Jonathan directly about that. Uh, but since then, he's continued his writing, his speaking, and his activism on these issues. He's a frequent guest on TV, on radio, and now podcasts like this one. He's been published in numerous well-renowned places, including the Huffington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, the New York uh, New Angeles Times, and Time magazine. They're quite an eclectic c- collection. Greg, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm, I am joining you from Washington, D.C., And it's cold there, and where I am, it's the middle of summer, so it's hot. But uh, seasons are a great thing to enjoy. Freezing rain. (laughs) (laughs) Far cry from what we're enjoying here. But uh, in 2015, you wrote a remarkable book, The Coddling of the American Mind. It became one of the most discussed uh, articles and set of arguments of that year. In essence, can you just overview, what did you argue in that article and subsequent book Why do you think it struck such a nerve, became such a talking point?
0: Um, Well, I think it's because we noticed a real trend that other people were noticing. And partially because I was, so I started at FIRE in 2001. I'm a First Amendment trained constitutional lawyer. Um, I defend free speech. uh, That's one of the parts of the First Amendment. Um, And I've been defending this on college campuses uh, since 2001. And it had always been the case that the students were actually good on free speech. The professors were questionable sometimes and the administrators were generally really the problem. Uh, But that experience of being on the ground, you got to see all these little micro culture war trends come up time and time again. Like one day it would be something related to gun control. The next time it would be something related to Christianity uh, or LGBT. Um, So there are all these trends, but throughout all of them, the students were pretty good on speech. And then in 2013, late 2013, more like 2014, you just saw a really dramatic shift in the attitudes of the students themselves. And they weren't just um, requesting new speech codes, which was unusual, or disinvitations, um, which was get this, you know, uh, in some cases right winger, oftentimes also fellow left winger off my campus because I disagree with this one thing. They were couching it in the language of mental health. Uh, and in sort of a medical justification for for um, uh, for banning speech, which was not entirely new, but largely new to us. So, and if, particularly if you are on the ground, it wasn't subtle. It was it wasn't as if there was this gradual shift in student attitudes. It was, uh, it was it, 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 there was 2013, 2014 and before. So that's when I went and talked to Jonathan Hite, uh, who I'd only recently become friends with, about my. Concern um, that essentially it seemed like we were teaching a generation of students the habits of anxious and depressed people, Um, something that I'd noticed universities trying to do since 2007, since I first learned about, I can go into more about this, but uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and I ran this idea by John and we decided to write an article about it. And I, I think one of the reasons why the article um, took off was at least in part because we were noticing something a lot of other people were noticing right at the time it was starting to become really intense. Um, since we were on the ground, uh, we could see what the trends had been and where they were headed. Um, and with with the help of Jonathan, we could ground it not just in typical First Amendment law, which is where, where I come in, but also ground it in how uh, in the argument that this is, this is not just bad for free speech it's bad not just and it's not bad just for the mental health of the people that are opposing on campus but it's even bad for the mental health of the activists and what happened right after that the thing that really made it clear that we had to go from writing a long article to writing a book was that we thought maybe there'd be a little tiny increase in anxiety and depression among that cohort it was, it was a skyrocket. Uh, you ended up seeing, you know, unfortunately, over a short period of time, twice the number of suicides for college-age women. Um, so uh, apparently we were on to something, uh, and it just ended up being much deeper than even we understood.
1: So you've got this quite extraordinary, quite narrowly defined in terms of, uh, of the timing of it, almost a flicking of the switch, from an acceptance that free speech was important to the idea that it can be harmful or hurtful, not just offensive and challenging. It seems to me that that's, that's, it's very hard to understand why it suddenly happened at that time. Why in 2014?
0: Um, and that's the whole, the whole book, Coddling in the American Mind. Um, which is, you know, now almost two and a half years old, um, was to try to figure out to do a social science detective story about what was so different about that generation coming in, um, and uh, it was incredibly interesting for us to do this research um, to to really go go in deep, and so the the the, the causes that we pointed to. Um, that could create such a sharp uh, discontinuity. One was social media. This was the first generation mm-hmm. of students who were coming in large numbers who had cell phones in their pockets and social media in their pockets since they were little. Um, and that uh, and, and that was a major shift. Um, the second one, uh, which is also related to social media, is polarization, which is more of a gradual thing, but that had certainly sped up. Um, so we talk about six causal threads. Uh, the other two are about parenting, which are a little bit more slow working. But the rise of paranoid parenting, which we attribute to a number of um uh, a number of different causes, it's kind of funny because as America got safer, it's uh, particularly the kind of stu- the kind of parents who would send their kids to elite colleges got more paranoid about that. Um, we talk about why universities, um, uh, that's partially hyper bureaucratization. Um, And the one before I get to the one where I'm starting to change my thinking on a little bit. um, The the other one uh, was lack of free play, that essentially there was an explosion towards the end of the 90s where there was where we got to see like America getting rich and Silicon Valley blowing up. And I think that this really made parents think, oh, my God, I got to send my kids to one of these Stanford's or Harvard's or Princeton's so they could be part of this exploding economy. Um, that, that put a very high premium on elite education. And so I think uh, that sort of sense of of this ferocious competition also really sped up post-90s for the people who were having their kids after 95. Now, that, why I say 95 is because what we discovered was we were talking about a different generation, um, that essentially kids born 1995 or after, or actually 1996 or after, or after 95, um, had a number of peculiar characteristics that made them very sharply distinct from the millennials who often get lumped in the same category. Um, but the category where I, I, I've changed my thinking on a little bit is, is the new ideas of social justice, um, which is uh, which is the uh, everything from privilege to uh, the medicalization of harm to the idea that um, in order for things to be equitable, you have to have the same results rather than the same opportunities. And that that one is a little bit hard to explain why it came up so hot and sudden, uh, wh- why it suddenly became so dominant. And that's at least in part social media, because these kind of rhetorical tactics that come out of social justice are very useful in argument they, they give you ways of sort of trumping other people's arguments oh my god trump i guess is a word that i, I should probably stop <laughs> using in that sense um and uh but one thing that, that that we tried to establish uh and we couldn't quite do it in the book but i'm thinking a lot about now is that i think the anti-bullying movement um that started after the suicide of tyler clementi in 2010 uh so this was a gay student um he was videotaped in an encounter um, w- with a man at Rutgers University by his clearly completely amoral um, roommate. Uh, and he was so humiliated by this, um, and this was so devastating to him that he killed himself. He, he jumped off, I believe the George Washington Bridge. And this brought uh, what I think is actually much needed attention to the problem of of bullying. It's a little bit of a weird fit because what the what his antagonist did was illegal already. Um, and he should have been punished for that, which he was, uh, and it was college, but, but this brought focus on bullying in K through 12. Um, in addition to some really high profile, nasty cases of, of, uh, virtual mobs, uh, you know, um, uh, mistreating girls in some cases who also committed suicide. So I think that one of the things that accounts for the sudden sharp, uh, change in ideology um, increasingly, I think it's because it lines up when the anti-bullying um, education really got intense in high schools. Uh, so it started really more about in 2011. And that's when you start getting the students hitting uh, colleges that have this very ingrained sense of, of, of a lot of the tenets of social justice.
1: Interesting that uh, you have these um, enormous social programs. We're seeing them in Australia too, probably right across the West, anti-bullying being one of them. This sort of really quite almost the state taking over the role of the parents in some ways, deciding that certain things should be, you know, pushed, other things should be decried. But it's gone hand in hand with far from better results and more settled students and more harmonious communities to more disturbed communities. You touched on it. We're seeing it amongst our young people. Record levels of anxiety and depression and self-harm. These programs are not working and I wonder whether in part it's because we just aren't giving our children a decent narrative. They have no story in the first place and no means by which they are encouraged to see one another as of intrinsic value. In fact, the whole concept of identity politics seems to fly against what the state and its education departments, loosely defined, are trying to impose on our children yeah no, that, that that's something that we really
0: try to hit the the mental health aspect of it hard, partially because i'm I'm passionate about it, but partially because we sincerely believe that a lot of these um ways of thinking, but also these ideologies, are devastating to mental health. So if you take kind of like how stressful social media is, even without ideology, um, it's very easy to get what is now called canceled, that essentially you say the wrong yeah, thing, yeah. and next thing you know, they're demanding that you get kicked out of your high school, get uh, get punished, uh, get kicked out of um, high, whatever university you're at, get kicked out of your job. Um, so it, it it creates a very tense situation, even without the hot ideology, um, it just the sort of gotcha uh, element of it, that all these dumb things that we would say or do when we were younger, or at least you know in some cases, dumb things, um, that uh, really went nowhere. Suddenly, if if your bad joke goes viral, you could that could be it for you, or at least for at a um, you know at a particular institution, uh, for example. And we really started to see that uh, that the the social media turn, turn nasty in like 2012, 2013. But add on to that, that kind of that kind of um, perilous kind of situation, you add on the ferocious competition to get into these elite schools and the sense that people are being left behind. But you add on top of it an ideology that's just as so bleak and hopeless um, as the current sort of form of social justice. Uh, why wouldn't you expect people to be depressed? And, and I see it actually as a little bit of almost kind of cruelty. It, if you know that, Students are coming in um, with high rates of suicide, high rates of anxiety and depression to tell them that they are part of an oppression matrix where practically all of them are, um, are, are oppressors. Um, because really, if you look at the ideology, almost everybody is an oppressor, at least
1: to someone. Yeah. And also a victim. Yes. That's the interesting thing. Almost everybody in some way in their life has also been a victim.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that essentially the only things you can do about this are fixation on language, that they're admitting your guilt about becoming an ally. There, it, it, uh, but, there, but ultimately it's something you can't really fix. It's a very bleak outlook. And of course, when it comes to things you could be proud of, apparently anything from uh, everything, everything's problematized. And it, the idea that you, you, you should be shocked that people feel miserable in a circumstance where you're giving them such a bleak worldview um,
1: and we really shouldn't be surprised. And then you add to that uh, climate change catastrophism, I'm not for a moment, please don't anybody hear anyone hear me say, I'm not saying it's important, but the catastrophism that's built up into such a sort of, oh, the children understand how serious it is. We're all going to die. What's wrong with the adults? Uh, we see a lot of that in Australia. And the children we know now, many of them feel, well, I'm gonna die anyway. Um, and even the worst predictions, uh, from uh, the international experts, hardly support that thesis. More difficult, challenging, worrying, but we kill hope. We kill hope.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like a you know an issue that we both take seriously. And one thing that I find frustrating about it is that the idea of like, so what can we do? <laughs> you know, like I'm yeah. I'm big on nuclear power, for example. I'm big on uh, trying to get fusion to work. I, there are actually solutions to this. But I, I just finished a good book um, by uh, Martin Gurry. Uh, we come from different political standpoints. But he he makes the point that globally, social media, the fifth wave, um, really uh, is only capable, at least at this point, of negation. It's only capable of sort of tearing things down. And if you look at that from the point of view of 2011, a lot more stuff start, starts, to, starts to make sense. And so, and that's one of the reasons why real issues like global warming, you know, like the idea that um, if you can only tear things down, then when people offer positive solutions, that gets t- that gets torn down, too. And what are you left with? Just a constant state of crisis.
1: Yeah, uh, I, it, it's a trite thing to say, but it seems to me that one of the terrible things we've done, and I'm a mid-baby boomer, uh, is, is to... Uh, know really make our children the mincemeat in our culture wars. Mm-hmm. You uh, actually said a, you said a very interesting thing in a discussion with Brett uh, Weinstein, just sort of summarising this, you actually said something to the effect that inflicting woke ideology on students who are already well known to be experiencing high levels of depression and anxiety uh, is actually incredibly irresponsible, which I think is what I'm saying as well. But um, do you have any further observations to make there? It seems to me that one of the really noticeable aspects of postmodernism as in its latest form, critical theory, is that there's an assumption, particularly in the West, that everything that's been done before us has, has been wrong, that we're never capable of making progress. And presumably that's because we're, you know, Critical theory theorists would argue that the system's so rotten, you can never concede it's done anything right, because that would say, well, it's not completely rotten. It may be possible that it can be redeemed, and they don't want that avenue open to young people, which adds to the despair. They're left feeling that the system is ho- so hopeless, we've got to find something else, but how could you ever find something better? Yeah.
0: Well, and what you're getting at is inherent in our our three great untruths in the book. But essentially, what we argue in the book is that it's as if we're teaching a generation of students um, and and of citizens, very dysfunctional lessons, lessons that, that when said aloud, you'd be like, well, that sounds ridiculous. And one of them is, your feelings are always right, which is the yeah. one that has has the most sort of attractiveness because it sounds initially, if you don't really think about it, not that bad. Um, but it is bad because one of the things that you learn from you know uh, dealing with anxiety and depression is how to you know talk back to your feelings and how to uh, how how to make them not the boss of you. Um, so th- that's yeah. probably the most attractive one. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker um, is another thing that we talk about as being a great untruth. This idea that telling students that, oh, by the way, um, the world is filled with things that will permanently harm you. Um, and they could also just be ideas or speech. And they may not harm you, but they could harm these people over here forever. And there's nothing that can be done about it. And of course, that ignores a lot of um, phenomena like uh, um, uh, post-traumatic growth, you know, which, which is something that gets discussed, that a lot of people actually get through traumatic events with a sense of, uh, of competence, a sense of power, but it completely leaves that out. And then the last one um, that the anti-bullying uh, you know, message, I think, I think actually really t- turned, turned the temperature way up, but also American political polarization, of course, did too, um, is that life is a battle between good people and evil people and i think this speaks to something like really deep in our hearts that want that battle that want that that good versus evil uh, battle but of course when you look at the world that way that's also pretty bleak um and it means that's and when you look at all the rules that you have uh you know when it comes to social justice when it comes to sort of campus ideology that means your brother is the enemy that means your dad might be the enemy that might mean your best friends suddenly the enemy um so th- it, it's incredibly sad. Um, But if I were to add one, um, like an underlying untruth, one of the things I've been playing with is the idea that the truth is easily known um, and largely known. Because social justice has this, well, when I talk about social justice, I am largely talking about um you know the way it's described by helen Pluckrose, you know in, in yeah, her book yeah. cynical theories um which I, I, even though i've heard, heard critiques of it i've never heard that it's substantively you know uh in, in, incorrect on any of this stuff um and this uh this uh kind of very deep theory of everything that really frankly has no basis in research but nonetheless is you know obsession with language is, is all that matters um everything's in decline. Uh, it's all about power and privilege. Um, it's really honestly like not a particularly sophisticated theory. It's, it is an oversimplification of everything about humanity, uh, which people in from the 1950s, sixties and seventies came up with because they thought what that was the lowest point of human history. So the idea that, um, uh, the idea that some of these postmodernist theorists looked at, you know, American society in, in, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s and said, this is the absolute nadir of human civilization. And we have to bash materialism and we have to get at the underlying evil uh, w- within our society. It just seems strange for any student of history to really think of like, don't you think maybe a hundred years before that or 200 years before that was a worse time than we currently live in so we have people mm-hmm. living in times that our grandparents would have been blown away by the uh convenience and luxury that we enjoy um and we but we also have convinced ourselves it's the worst possible
1: time to be alive it is extraordinary uh, and the other thing that well there's so many things we could talk about there uh, but the other thing that seems so bleak about it is that this idea that um uh, if life's a battle between good people and bad people, then you, then you have to set yourself up as a good person. You're hardly going to set yourself up as part of the problem. Uh, and before you know it, you're in territory where you lack self-awareness uh, and any any sort of awareness of your own failings, and, re- and far from helping people's mental health, that seems to damage it. Worse than that, perhaps, is that you lose the capacity for genuine identification with other people as opposed to concocted identity in an empathy age, um, uh, empathy rather in an empathy age. And you become very unforgiving, very intolerant. Tolerance is meant to be you know one of the great values of the age. But it strikes me that we could hardly be less tolerant. that critical theory is a doctrine of unbelievable intolerance, where there's almost no place if there's any for forgiveness unless you do a complete grovelling mere culpa and fall completely in line and of course there's very little prospect of forgiveness uh, forgetting and just moving on it's always capable to bring things up against people in the, in an age when everything's recorded against you
0: yeah no that that's absolutely true it, it there there there's uh it teaches a kind of dismissiveness. Over most of the population of the planet, um, while at the same time talking about things like you know tolerance and 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 compassion and and inclusivity, um it gives you sort of a cartoon version of what your uh, fellow human beings are alike. And when you look at some of the recent studies of Empathy among younger people—you um, know, a lot of them, uh, or at least the ones that I've seen—seem to indicate that empathy has actually gone down, which is surprising. When you explain to to the students, when you explain this to them, like, "Well, no, but we're trying to be more inclusive than ever," and I'm like, "Yes, but what do you actually think about your literal neighbor now? Um, what do you think about your you know, that, that your uncle or aunt um, that, that that gets mouthy at, at, at Thanksgiving?" And it tends to be this very oversimplified narrative of, of them being evil and you being maybe good, Uh, and and of course, like when you get deep into the ideology, it it, it is a state where you, the most you could ever hope to be is maybe good-ish.
1: Yeah, well, uh, so to change gears a bit, if I could, and it'll it'll involve these very themes again, but um, to come to FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, uh, and you're its president, can you tell us a bit about FIRE? Uh, and then we'd, I'd love to move on to you know, your role as a First Amendment uh, scholar, but FIRE first. Oh, delighted to. Um, so
0: FIRE was founded in 1999 when I was just finishing up law school. And um, when I graduated, uh, I was the unusual law student who wanted to go into First Amendment law specifically. And of course, everyone was saying there's no jobs in that, you know, kind of like, "What? why are you hyper specializing in this weird thing that that almost nobody works in? Um, but I, you know, took a risk, and I didn't go to the law firm route. And I, uh, they actually fire found me because partially I'd cultivated the reputation as being the the First Amendment guy, and so I started there in two thousand one, right after nine um, eleven. And I've dealt with, I've dealt with cases all over the political map, every kind of speech. But the main thing that kind of surprised me, starting in two thousand one, was one, already it was really easy to get in trouble for what you said on campus, but two. A lot of what would get you in trouble on campus was stuff that people off campus, um, at least back then, wouldn't even bat an eye at. Um, it was it was so uh, so remarkably tame by the standards of say Comedy Central, for example, um, that would get you, uh, what, what could get you in trouble on campus. Um, so I've now been doing this uh, fires it just turned twenty uh, last year. Um, and it's been a heck of a ride. Uh, and, of course, you know, uh, I wrote a book called Unlearning Liberty, which came out in 2012, talking about my first 12 years defending free speech on campus. And it is it, it, it is a long or maybe short, strange trip.
1: <laughs> well, uh, particularly here in this country, people might not know so much about the First Amendment. There's an interesting historical aspect to it, of course, because, correct me if I'm wrong, But, you know, after the War of Independence and then the setting up uh, uh, of the federated states, if you like, uh, coming together as the new republic, there were huge tensions. It's not unusual for there to be very deep divisions in American society. In some ways, as a former practitioner of, of, of politics, that can be a very good thing as long as there's basic respect for the other person and a willingness to negotiate. So you had the anti-federalists lining up against those who felt that America needed to set up what we now call America, I suppose you'd say. And the anti-federalists needed some assurance that this new power centre would not take away individual rights, as I understand it. And that stood behind the development of the First Amendment way back in what, the 1780s, 1790s? Can you just give us a feel for it? Because history is important. Oh yeah, no. Um,
0: It's kind of sad because when you look at how um, on on campus and in high schools, American history is taught, it's all, it's become unfortunately extremely negative when I think, you know, if you're a constitutional lawyer, you're proud of something about the United States. And for a lot of Americans, what we're proud of is our constitution and we should be proud of our constitution. Um it, to a large degree, uh, the lessons of the horrible religious wars of europe um were very uh, were burned into the brains of our founders, thankfully. Um, and a lot of those uh, those problems that you saw in the old country in Europe, um you know, they came across to 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 the u s as well, but in an interesting form. and And partially, when people are so concerned with, everything in terms of um, uh, identity politics, in terms of race, they uh, it, not knowing that much about American history can look at the colonial period and say, oh, well, it's all white people. It's like, yes, there are white people whose grandparents, parents, maybe even they fought religious wars back in Europe um, were at each other's throats in the North. And then you had slave owning merchants in the, in, in the South. It, it was a weird cacophony of dissimilar people who, um, in some cases, if you had them in the same room together, would hate each other's guts. So it wasn't as if it was, there was no it, ah. it was peace, peaceful, like, you know, lilies and flowers for everybody. And people really kind of miss the religious part of it too, because, you know, you, the idea that it takes a lot of genuine commitment to tolerance to really be like, listen, I think your idea is going to send you and your, your family to hell. Um, But at the same time, I will be a citizen with you and we will go and we will hear each other out and all that kind of stuff. So the First Amendment, you know, sometimes there's a tendency among historians to refer to the French Revolution as the Radical Revolution and the American Revolution as the Conservative Revolution. And to a degree, that's justified. I mean, the the French Revolution went entirely off the rails um, in, 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 in unfortunately spectacular ways. But I, I, but I do bristle a little bit at people talking about uh, the American Revolution as being conservative. Because if you look at the, 70, in, in the old sense, not, not, in, not in the political sense, conservative in the sense of being like not, not radical. But if you look at the First Amendment, you know, it protects freedom uh, of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to petition your government, um, uh, freedom to, to assemble. Uh, and a lot of times they call it the religion clause, which I don't like. It's two separate things. One is you have the freedom to exercise your religion as you see fit, and most um, arguably uh, as importantly, that the state cannot impose a religion or, or cannot even establish um, its, own, its own religion. And we take this for granted now, but think about the world that the founding fathers were coming yeah. from. They were saying, these are now going to be things that we no longer spill blood over. We're not going to spill blood over opinion, over press, over assembly, over religion, um, or your freedom from religion. This is a radical, positive step in, in, in human history, and, and it's abiding the First Amendment. And it's so radical that many of us have to choose what clause of the First Amendment um, we, we, we defend. So I'm, I'm not as well-versed in, in, the, in the religion aspect, um, but the, the free speech aspect of it has been so crucial To the development of every, uh, you know, of of not every, but um, certainly in the 20th century, it's why uh, we were able to have a civil rights movement and a gay rights movement and a women's rights movement. It was, and why did that take so long? It's partially, unfortunately, because in it wasn't until 1925 um, that the Supreme Court started taking seriously. The First Amendment had real implications for the states themselves through the 14th Amendment, which came after the Civil War. It's a little bit complicated. Um, But when you look at what free speech has done, um, I have to go, and and when I speak on campus, and I always really, uh, forgive me for talking a little bit longer on this, um, this is a really important point that people seem to miss Um, because the way I feel like a generation is being miseducated about it. Uh, Wealth and power, have always been protected um, in human society. Uh, What are they protected by? They've been protected by wealth and power. Wealth and power protects itself. And so that's all of human history. Once you start having um, democracy, then 51% uh, protects you as well. So we now have a state where the wealthy and powerful are still protected. The majority now have power too. But what we were recognizing in the First Amendment and in the Bill of Rights was that we didn't want to live in a country where every four years or every year, depending on like, like Congress or president to be more important, um, that the minority gets completely beaten up um, and jailed yeah. and put away by, by the majority. Um, so freedom of speech, First Amendment only exists to protect minority points of view and uh, and minority religions all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but you have a generation of people who have been educated in an environment where the political um uh, the the political leaning is so lopsided in the other direction they've actually been miseducated to believe that free speech is about um tyranny it's about it's about um it's about the the rule of the majority it's like no it's the exact opposite and the only reason why Um, This generation can't see it is because universities will not admit, to to be
1: frank, their
0: own privilege.
1: Yeah, I get that precisely. I think it's an incredibly important point. Free speech is there to protect the little people, not the privileged and the powerful. And this is one of the great problems I think we have In, in an age like ours. The problem is that the people who have the cultural heft don't think it's an issue because they're not feeling constrained. They're patting one another on the back saying, we're right, we've got the power. To go back to the framing of that constitution, I take your point that leaving behind the ugliness uh, of um, much of what had happened in Europe uh, was probably very much in the minds of the framers of the constitution. And you think of Alexander Hamilton in particular, worried about mob rule. How do we restrain mob rule? But i just test a thesis with you. I've always thought that that... The essential, um, I suppose you'd say, Christian concept that each individual has worth and dignity but is fallible was also very prominent in their thinking. You see, this is the counter to the problem of life is a battle between good people and bad people. There was a recognition that no one had a monopoly on either. Uh, And and that seems to me to be one of the things that we are losing that was unique to the Judeo-Christian-influenced West. This unique understanding that every individual has worth and dignity, uh, but at the same time is fallible. As one American put it, Americans are so good, we had to give ourselves the vote. Americans are so bad, we had to give ourselves the vote. It captures that dual aspect. So this is important to understand as our society unravels. And we're confronted now by the rise again of communism, where of course, the good people are the people who are in power, they determine what's right and wrong and everybody else falls into line. It's a very different and very dangerous doctrine and should force us surely to re-examine our own roots because we find their massive wisdom and insight bought at the expense of great learning, great study, but also a proper reading of history.
0: Yeah, well, I I talk about this a lot. I mean, clearly my my last name is Russian. my great-great-grandfather was a serf, uh we were we would have been labeled kulaks um because we were uh people we were peasants who made good, owned land, were doing actually quite well at the time of uh the of of the first world war. So I have a lot of family experience with um uh with the issue of you know communism versus liberalism. Small liberalism, and this is the way I I ended up having to explain it um, to people who who um, feel warm and fuzzy about uh, that, which is amazing to actually have to deal with as an adult. But the uh, the founders of the U, uh, of uh, of the U.S. created a system that will still work even if people were miserable jerks. Like they they assumed they wanted to create a system that could deal pretty effectively with human flaws. So that's one of the reasons why. Um, They wanted democracy, but they didn't want mob rule. Um, They wanted uh, power uh, to be divided because of bias. Uh, All these things that that a lot of times when you talk to people on on college campuses, they think we just came up with these ideas. It's like, no, the the founding fathers were incredibly clever in the ways that they divided up uh, power and uh, created checks and balances because of people could be both wonderful and, and terrible. And so there's an optimism and the, a little bit of realism. I, I don't. I even hesitate to call it cynicism about human nature uh, that's inherent in, in in our constitutional system. Meanwhile, communism was predicated on the idea that people could be angels. People, people that, that at least the model citizen would be um, would be. Uh, they'd subject themselves. They'd give themselves over to the morality of the state, and become sort of the perfect proletariat. And the problem with that is, is that if you assume people are angels, it actually creates a situation in which there's tremendous incentive to be evil, um, to, to actually be the one who doesn't have to mm-hmm. play by the rules. And so it wasn't a coincidence that you saw this incredibly cynical, um, uh, situation going on because if, if someone, and I don't think it, it was a coincidence, you had people like Stalin sociopaths who were essentially like, well, you know, if you guys are all bound by all these like little, little, little rules, um, I don't have to be. And so I think it created, uh, you know, for for generations of Russians, a, a really messed up sense of, sense of morality. Meanwhile, they thought over here in the U.S. it was just all evil capitalism and 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 all stabbing each other in the back. But it actually turns out that. With a good system of laws, with a good system of checks and balances, with with a system of uh, mar- market friendly economies where people are actually trying to have transactions with each other, it actually encourages a sense of like, oh, actually, it's uh, on me to be trustworthy, it's on me uh, to be diligent, to be all of these kind of things that um, uh, don't that currently don't get enough sort of credit and understanding. Like the the fostering of trust, for example, how how essential the the fostering of trust uh, it has been. In, uh in an american commercial success for example or for that um is something that's badly underappreciated
1: yeah and i understand and and i i strongly concur with what you're saying uh indeed um, i wonder how many people today could have could write with the depth of experience and insight and the eloquence and I don't claim to have read anything like all of them, but I've read snippets of them, of the so-called Federalist Papers, many of them written by Alexander Hamilton. They are amazing. And I think we are incredibly smug when we think, oh, it all just happened, and now I can be an activist and get my way uh, and not worry about actually being a positive contributor to society. I'll use democracy without understanding what democracy is. But to move on, because... uh, uh, I'll talk too much, and I really want to capture your thoughts. You said something very interesting about your, your, you believe that universities, an attractive idea to me, ought to be sort of like laboratories for free speech, um, but, but, but they, you know, they're not being. And can I ask you why philosophically, just to really drill into this, why should people care about free speech? And, and do you think there's anything that, you know, where should we draw the limits? Should there be limits and where should we draw them? Um, I have a a slightly different philosophy on free speech than most people.
0: Um, And mine is probably one of the more expansive theories that you're going to run into. and uh, so the marketplace of ideas is sort of the dominant metaphor uh, uh, in First Amendment law that basically, and this is Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know a gr- great jurist, great genius, um, you know who we were very lucky to have on the Supreme Court and became one of the first champions of freedom of speech. Um, ca- kind of an unlikely choice to be champion of freedom of speech. And at first actually he was he, he was very skeptical of it. And it was him and Louis Brandeis who eventually really radicalized the First Amendment and um, uh, made it powerful. But he, uh, his argument was that essentially, uh, and him and Brandeis's, was that you wanted a marketplace of ideas where essentially uh, things can battle out for dominance, and presumably not necessarily the best would win, uh, but some of the bad ideas would w- would fail. Um, it, it wasn't they didn't have any kind of um, hyper um, optimism about the idea that good ideas will always succeed, but the, but truth doesn't have a standing, uh, a fighting chance when you can't even say it, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. But I go a step further. I think that the value of freedom of speech is very simple, but very essential to any society. It's knowing what people really think, period. And I don't just believe that from a point of view of uh, democracy. Uh, and that's where marketplace of ideas makes the most sense. The marketplace of ideas metaphor makes most sense in two, di- two different places, democracy uh, and in scholarship In uh, the idea of battling out ideas. that That's about the battle of ideas but it's only about this kind of small piece of, of, of the pie. Most of freedom of expression is simply letting people be themselves and knowing what makes them tick and knowing what they really think. And this is important from a democratic standpoint shortly um, because, uh, and, and this is important from a, from a scientific standpoint because, this is the whole humanist project. It's the project of human knowledge. It's to know what the world's actually like. And you know nothing about what the world is actually like if you don't know how people actually think and what they really think. And therefore, I think I have a very expansive view of freedom of speech. And this includes things like, you know, I don't think people should be going to jail for conspiracy theories. Now, if they do, something um, that crosses a line into into conspiracy, uh, conspiracy to commit a crime, all that kind of stuff. Our law actually handles that really quite well. But the fact that someone believes in a conspiracy theory is not just, um, uh, it's it's a worthwhile thing to know. And currently right now we have this QAnon phenomena um, in, in the US and it's much more, it's wild conspiracy theory, it actually led to someone um, shooting up a, uh, a pizza bar um, that people like to go to in Washington, D.C. It's like one of Cosmos. It's like one of our favorite places. And it's like, wow, you actually thought there was a child sex ring in, in the basement. Now, of course, anything that that, that person did towards uh, going and shooting up and all that kind of stuff, there are multiple illegal steps before that actually happened. Um, but it's really important to know that if you have these ideas in society, that people can actually Talk about them because when you get people just talking to other people um, who already agree with them, uh, it, it has a very predictable social science effect. It, co- it causes people to be more radical in the position, that, uh, in the in the conspiracy, mm-hmm. in some cases, but or but in the belief that they were. They get a sense of tribalism. They get a they get more arguments on their side, and it leads to a polarization spiral. So um, even even conspiracy theories, not only do I think that they are uh, they should be protected, I think that they're worthy of study. Um, and I think that, for example, like the um, uh, Elders of the, Pro- uh, uh, the Protocols of Zion, um, horrifying uh, idea that that, that there's a, there was a Jewish conspiracy to dominate the world um, uh, that came out in the, the teens or 20s, 1920s. But you have to study that because you have to understand what actually happened in the world. You have to be, be able to know what the world actually looks like. So my view overall on free speech is extremely expansive, uh, but but at the same time, I also, and I, and this is where I, I, I'm, I'm a bad American, is that I show up in other countries and I say, listen, I know I'm supposed to say, well, this is our system. It shouldn't be your system. Um, I actually, I, I throw that out the window. I'm like, listen, I think that the American First Amendment jurisprudence has been some of the best thought out meditations on how you have free speech in the real world as as someone actually in charge. Um, and that I think that those exceptions that we cr- that we created in First Amendment law make a lot of coherent sense not not necessarily perfectly in, in all of them but for example that that's why incitement is not protected in the United States and, and but it, it can't just be, hey, I think we should overthrow the government. It has to be a situation where you're actually about to go and do said, uh, you know, said behavior. Libel is not protected, and, you know, for, for example, which is claiming falsely, uh, and particularly when it comes to public figures, knowingly knowing something's not true and saying this person's committed some heinous act, like uh, pet- pedophilia is, is one of the examples that's given, that's not protected. Um, We do have uh, what what I think are just uh, in line with human nature: ability to restrict kids' exposure to sexual content, for example. Um, First Amendment lawyers uh, have have trouble with that, but I I think that in the battle, in the psychological battle between parents and uh, the First Amendment, that if you can't actually do take any steps to sort of uh, keep your kids from seeing porn, that's going to lose. So I think we're very pragmatic on that. We have things like um, time, place, and manner restrictions that essentially, uh, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to stop someone on the basis of their, their decibel level from having a concert, uh, you know, in Central Park at four o'clock in the morning. Um, so it's a very coherent body of law, but what makes it different from other countries is, uh, well, and one of the main things that makes it different, is the bedrock principle. And the bedrock principle, it comes from a case about uh, burning American flags. And it's simply that you can't ban something just because it's offensive.
1: Understood. Uh, well, that brings us to universities. Uh, you, uh, after a 2007 study, I think, said that uh, uh, a lot of the codes on uh, in American universities in relation to free speech were laughably unconstitutional. Uh, in fact, I think you said most of them, if not three-quarters of them, what were some of the worst examples of violations of free speech protection on campus? And I must say, I was amazed to hear that some of them have free speech zones on campuses. What yeah. are they?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I wrote a whole book on the worst violations from, uh, fr- from that point in my career. Um, and free speech zones are one of the ones that just really particularly drive me nuts. Um, and these keep on cropping their head up, uh, and and they're taking advantage of this time, place, and manner restriction idea, where essentially they say, you know, this campus loves free speech so much, we're going to um, set aside one lone gazebo on campus. This was really the case at Texas Tech University, and Texas Tech University is one of the biggest universities physically in the whole country. They have 28,000 students, and they were trying to tell people that you got one a uh, 20 foot wide gazebo to exercise your free speech, which included handing out pamphlets, handing out magazines. Um, and that was laughably uh, unconstitutional. Uh, and we challenged that um, with the help of a Christian litigation group and it it, it was defeated. Um, but I, I mean, it's amazing. Like I, I, I see a case right now um, that we see on the United States where it's a professor who um, had an exam question that included um, a reference to racial epithets. Um, and, and it was B blank and N blank. Um, and, you, and one is for a, a derogatory, and then he had parentheses. One is a derogatory term for women and another one is a derogatory term for African Americans. This is at law school um, where you're taking, you. every lawyer is required to take crim law. Crim law is grisly. It's, it's nonstop horror show of like really unlikely cases because we have a common law. Um, uh, country, a uh, torts, you know is is grisly as, as well. And the idea that you would actually even have to you know excise out epithets because it, it it somehow is no longer understood that you can talk about something without calling somebody something, which is something a basic idea um, of education is that you can examine something as adults from the outside. But in this case, the professor even X'd it out. But apparently, making students think about those words was considered offensive enough that he's suspended. And this is a uh, University of Illinois at Champaign, uh, a major university in the U.S. Um, and at a law school. And you have to wonder: it's like, how are these people going to practice law if they if they can't even be reminded of some of the things that actually will happen, some of the horrible things that people will say in law practice, or or for the interesting things that people will study.
1: Students coming out of this uh, environment, I mean, I heard a man I respect hugely uh, uh, recently say that, oh, yes, but they get out into the real world, have to start finding a job, paying taxes. They all come to their senses. I'm beginning to think that that's very optimistic indeed that these people who are coming out of our universities, I don't want to sound derogatory about them. I think we need to accept a huge part of the responsibility for what's happened as older Westerners. Uh, But I suspect they are now starting to shape the world in ways that is quite unrealistic and quite frightening that they're not going to lead us into some sort of new nirvana. And I think particularly of the way in which many young people, I'm sure well-meaning, joined the Black Lives Matter movement without understanding what what Black Lives Matter in particular really is or without having a real understanding, here's the, the important point that I raised earlier, of the progress that has actually been made. There's this idea that, Somehow, as as, um, uh, some people might say, we've made tremendous progress on many of these issues. We are getting to a much better place. But all of a sudden we decide we're complete and absolute failures uh, and we go um, accelerate harder than ever down the road of self-condemnation. So young people are starting to shape or these views are starting to shape our society in ways which will transform it and end up costing us our freedoms. Well, when it comes to Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, people get the sentence
0: confused with the organization and uh, absolutely. And of of course, Black Lives Lives Matter. And I'm definitely, I'm a civil liberties lawyer. So do I believe that American policing needs reform? Absolutely. The kind of things that we saw happening with with George Floyd, you know, for example, happening um, Across the country, the, the, a lot of these are incidents of real police abuses. One of the things that, um, uh, when you start things like the George Floyd incident, you know, um, it got uh, broadcast all over the country, there was a moment when you had near unanimity. Um, in the U.S. for police reform, and there are specific things we could have done. You know, limiting, limiting, or eliminating uh, the the kind of uh, liability protections uh, police have. You could have body cameras. You could have um, you you could have uh, review boards. There's lots of different ways you could address the uh, dis- disproportionate power of police unions. There were specific things we could have and should have done during that time, but unfortunately, the ideology that comes off campus it doesn't like I said, it doesn't really seem to want a solution. It's about this eternal process of guilt and shame, um, as if that will be, that will have some positive effect And, and really policing your language as well, will actually create a positive effect without engaging the political process. It's a theory of social change that seems to be really just grounded in feeling differently, which won't actually do it, won't actually fix the problem. And it, one of these things that you see um, with the, with this generation that we first were concerned about when they were hitting campus, as they're hitting the workplace, is that ordinary interpersonal conflict in, uh, at some of these workplaces has turned into matters for uh, human resources, HR. Um, and we saw this coming, and we were being, uh, Height and I were being told by employers that they that they were being hit with a wave of, of uh, recent graduates from elite colleges who were kind of ungovernable. That that essentially small conflicts, um, things that would have been not even uh, come across HR's. Um, uh, desk previously were things that required staff meetings and attention away oftentimes from the good work of the organization itself. So I think that what we've done, unfortunately, is we've taught um, a, a, at least a sizable percentage of the people graduating from elite colleges, beliefs that are dysfunctional for their mental health, um, but also ones that are dysfunctional for corporations. Um, and you see, you, you, you saw this in ACT, for example, at the, the New York Times, um, where uh, a uh, James Bennett, who was brought to the New York Times specifically to make sure that the, J- that, that the New York Times was no longer in an echo chamber of just sort of elite liberal opinion. Uh, that's why he was brought to the New York Times. That's why he added Barry Weiss um, to, to, uh, to the writers at the New York Times, because the New York Times at least had a moment of, of, of self-reflection in 2016, where they said, oh, my God, like, we... Didn't, we didn't see the Trump thing coming. We, we, we need to get better in touch." Well, after doing his job pretty well, and, and James Bennett brought in all sorts of interesting opinions o- over that time, um, he got uh, people who were, particularly the recent graduates, really hated his guts for it. And particularly for bringing someone like uh, a, a mildly right, uh, right of center person like Barry Weiss, somehow that was a, a offensive to um, a number of people at the times. And when James Bennett published a piece from a senator, a sitting senator, saying that maybe we should bring in the National Guard um, to deal with violence um, uh, from the riots that were happening over the last year, Um, something I oppose, by the way, um, to to be very clear, um when they published that and this was the opinion of 53% of the population of the country 53% so this wasn't a, a a minority point of view this was a senator saying it and it was the opinion of the president of the United States um he was told that he was putting the lives of of uh, of of reporters of color in danger an argumentation tactic that is very much like an elite college uh, argumentation tactic and he he was uh, forced to resign only only about a month later, Barry Weiss resigned as well. Um, and this is just one example of, of a very public um, uh, sort of colonization of uh, major corporations by um, th- this point of view that doesn't really accept different points of view, that's very, very conformist, even though they like to think of it as being, you know, maybe, I don't know what they like to think of it as, but it's very uh, strict. Uh, and, it's, and it's happening at corporations all over the country. And some corporations have um, probably already uh, uh, um, suffered from this, and I, th- I think it's going to bring some major ones down.
1: What, um, where do you think the Biden administration will go on freedom of speech? And in particular, what attitude will they take towards the Facebooks uh, and the Twitters, the platforms of this world that seem now to be determined to play a role in what we can and can't hear, and therefore what we can and can't think?
0: Yeah. Well, um, I'm concerned about the incoming administration. Now I, I make no, um, uh, bones about it. I'm a Democrat. I've, I voted for Biden. Um, and I voted for him knowing, uh, that he was going to come in and, uh, maybe turn the department of education back into the one that we'd been battling during the Obama administration. Um, and, uh, and all things being equal, I decided, you know, um, uh that, uh, uh that and to hope, you know, that, that essentially we can convince them to not go back to the bad practices from the Department of Education previously. Now you hear Obama talk about free speech and you talk about listening across lines of difference. He's incredible. He's a, he's really really good on this stuff. And I hope that some of that thinking has brushed off on on Biden. What I suspect's going to happen is we're going to find ourselves bag- um, banging heads a lot with the Department of Education again. And when it comes to what's gonna happen to social media at this point, I don't know. I I, I honestly don't know what's gonna happen. I I think that the um, Trump administration had a very bad idea in trying to get rid of the section 230. I think that if section 230 got repealed um, and that's liability protection for, uh, not just for social media but for internet service providers of all kinds. Um, If 230 got repealed, all the some of the people would suffer the most. Ironically, uh, would be Trump supporters. Um, it, it would mean that you, that uh, that um, internet service providers would suddenly not want to put material that that could get them sued uh, up there. And once you got corporations playing cautious, it's going to be every dissenting opinion is going to be kicked kicked off. So I think that some of the ideas of how to manage social media were really not good in the previous administration, um, uh, but I'm afraid, but I don't know what they're going to look like in the Biden administration. So right now, um, you know, fingers crossed that it won't be worse than getting rid of 230.
1: Right. Well, you've been very generous with your time. I wonder if you can wrap up. It's very tempting to say to hear people expressing, I don't know where we're going to end up with these trend lines but it doesn't look like it's going to end well. I'm afraid I am of a slightly different view. I think we're in the mess, but that probably preempts the question that I I wanted to put to you. Um, if you think in recent years, uh, say the last five years in particular, of the things that have shaped America, uh, technology and social media, what we might loosely call Trumpism, and I've never seen Trump as so much the problem as the... Um, the result of a divided and polarised America where too many people felt shut out. But you may have a different view on that. Wokeness and the whole sort of critical theory movement uh, as a practical manifestation of postmodernism and COVID. Where do you think America's at now? And do you think America can put this behind? Sometimes the darkest is just before the dawn. Or is it going to be just too much to sort of reconstruct a free and open and global leader, because that's what America's been, and champion of, 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 of liberal democratic principles and ways of living?
0: I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic about the fate of free speech for a very simple reason. Um, free speech works really well. It tells you what problems you have. It, it gives you solutions. It tells you, I mean even just the free flow of information, which which is my um, overall take on the value of free speech. I call it the pure informational value of free speech. It just works really well. So for the long-term um, I think that a lot of these small L liberal institutions will succeed because they're, uh, they're smart and, and they're effective. Uh, over the next couple of years, I mean, COVID was definitely one of those things that um, kind of uh, is like a slap in the face to remember uh, the contingency of history, that essentially things can go very wrong very quickly for things that you didn't necessarily, that you might have foreseen, but end up being many times worse than you think. Um, it was uh, at the same time, you know, America pulled for uh, a moderate candidate, comparatively moderate compared to the rest, the rest of the field. Is there a possibility of of healing during this, during this time in the post-COVID era? I hope so. Um, I am afraid that just like you said, that we're in the middle of something that is, frankly, not just an American shift, it's a global shift. And the negation theory that essentially social media can only destroy, it can't really build up, I think we're still in that. And I think that's, that redressing that is going to require you know, new cultural norms about arguing that actually look a lot like the old cultural norms about arguing, um, a, a more involved population when it comes to actual decision making. Um, and that could potentially be very positive. Um, negation, you know, scientific method to a large degree is about tearing things down so you can build them back up. So maybe there's a bright side on the on the other end of this. Um, uh, where do I think we end up? Um, I'm hopeful. You know, I, I'm I'm hopeful for uh, a, a resuscitation of small L liberalism, um, partially because it it it's a path for human fulfillment and advancement and uh, society. Uh, but are we at the turning point where that's going to start to come back? I don't know.
1: Well, that's a tremendous point to uh, wind up and to say thank you very, very much. I think uh, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay make a very interesting point that that classic uh, democratic liberalism, as we've known it for so long, enables people from left to center and right of center to find a platform where they can hammer out their differences, come up with a consensus and have that consensus owned. I'm putting words into their mouth, but this is the way I see it. Um, uh, That the maximum number of people can own. And no one has come up with a better model, no one. And so surely uh, given the stark alternatives that are now on offer and so easy to see, in our own societies, but also globally, there'll be enough people of good sense and goodwill uh, to move back. And I, I salute you, sir, if I could use an old English expression, uh, for uh, the uh, vigorous and courageous role that people like you, and you in particular, uh, are playing in the, in the clarion call, issuing a clarion call for a return to a, a return to good, sound, sensible principles that have served us so well in the past.
0: Thank you no I, I, I really appreciate that. and um, the uh, you know, liberalism is one of the great inventions of human history, and free speech is one of the greatest uh, inventions of human history, and I hope we don't throw it away because we're scared or anxious.: <laughs> You've been listening to John Anderson Direct For further content, visit
1: johnanderson.net.au